One of the things that I've uh, really enjoyed here recently as things begin to open up is the launch of life groups. We just uh, finished our, our summer session of life groups. They'll be back uh, for the fall session. You're going to hear more about them in the coming weeks. But last night, we just had some people, our life group over. We ate some food, and uh, we began to share just what takes place in a very informal sharing over, over a meal. And uh, it led me to kind of change my introduction entirely because I want to take a survey of those who are here. And if you're online, I don't know, text me. Uh, I, need, I need to know, do you like your bananas green or yellow? <laughs> See, we sat there and we talked, and, and there was one person in particular, maybe there was more than one, who prefers them to be a little more on the greener side. One actually likes them to be really green. And we prayed for that person, laid hands on them and cast out. I mean, like, who does that? Now, I will admit that we probably eat bananas. Anyways, just, just, I have a banana. I have some convictions when it comes to bananas. You need a little dot. You need some brown on that thing. That's called ripe. Can I get an amen? Oh, all right. It's funny, when you sit and, and have a relationship with people, that's the beautiful thing about life group. Uh, you know, the church is not something where we come and we just kind of consume. It's not a spectator sport. It's, it's living life together. And, and, and in a room like this, it's hard for us to, to, to get to know everyone equally, but it's important that we know someone. So life group is something you're going to hear more of. I'm excited about it. I believe that God leads us into spiritual growth in the context of community. So we're sitting there in community, in my backyard, in the patio. We're talking about green bananas. And then get this, burnt meat being the preference for some people. Once again, we like anointed them with oil, and <sighs> you really get to know people. There's one thing about sitting in rows. There's nothing when you sit in a circle. We sat in a circle, and we shared life, and you really get to know people because relationship hap happens when you're with people, and you're with people, and you're sharing your life. Now, that whole idea of, boy, we really got to know people. We got to know things we didn't even want to know about green bananas and burnt, burnt meat, but I was thinking about this message that we're, that we're looking at today. The passage we're looking at today is all about relationship. In fact, as we've been in this series called The Book of Glory, Jesus in the upper room started in, in chapter 13, like the last half of the book of John. This whole time since chapter 13, we're in 16 now. This whole time has been Jesus sitting in a circle with his disciples, sharing life with them, who he's walked with for three years and he's shared his life with. Nobody knows Jesus quite like them. And then in 14, let me just backtrack a little bit. He says, hey, I'm going to leave you guys. And they're like, wait a minute. You can't leave us. He's like, oh, you know the way. Like, we don't know the way. How can we know the way if we don't even know where you're going? And he says what? I am the way. And we talked about how Jesus was calling his followers to relationship, even though he says, I'm about to leave you. Like, we are hours away from him being arrested, put on trial, then crucified. He's in the upper room. He says, I am the way, which makes no sense if you're leaving. You know, like he's calling them to relationship. Then he says in, in chapter 15, we spent a couple weeks there, abide in me. Once again, a relationship passage. Uh, this whole thing is, is bathed in relationship. But here's the funny thing. Jesus is leaving. And he's calling us to deeper relationship. He's calling his disciples a deeper relationship. Then the last time we were together, we saw the very end of chapter 15 into chapter 16. Jesus saying, the world's going to, they're, they're going to, they're going to oppose you because of me. If you identify with me, so they're, so they're like, okay, you're leaving, but you're calling us to be in relationship with you, and then you're saying that things are going to get hard. 
I, I would imagine a lot of the disciples, and we know this from other texts, that the disciples were kind of like with Jesus because they thought they're going to reign with him when he enters into his kingdom. They thought, yeah, they thought this was a good move, a good place to be. Who's going to sit next to Jesus? But now he's just rocking their world. And you kind of read a little bit of that being rocked at the very beginning of our passage today in, in John chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 16. We're going to pick it up in John 5, and, and as you turn, let me just give, if you are guests with us, if you're new, uh, we are in this series on the book of John. We started a long time ago, but this is like the sub-series of the book of John, and John was written by the Apostle John, so eyewitness of all these things, but decades and decades after the church started, at the end of the first century, he's reflecting back after the church has been in existence, after Jesus has, has been resurrected and ascended to the Father, he's looking back and remembering the words of Jesus and writing a gospel that's really unique compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we call the Synoptic Gospels. John gives us a perspective that um, he has a whole lot of stuff that isn't really shared, uh, which is awesome. His purpose uh, in, in writing John, which we haven't actually read yet because it's in the ben, end of the book, is John chapter 20, uh, verse 30 through 31, where he goes, I, I, you know, Jesus did a lot of things, but I wrote these things down so that you would believe and have life in him. And so that's, the, that's the, the thrust of why John is writing this book. And we've already talked about the things that have led up to the passage we're going to read today. So let me go ahead and begin reading. John chapter 16, starting in verse 5. But now I'm going away to the one who sent me. And none of you is asking where I'm going because they're all like concerned about themselves. I mean, listen, if, I, if I'm saying, hey, we're going on vacation, a lot of times you'd be like, so where are you going? You're going to see family? You're going to see Mickey Mouse? What are you doing? Uh, but they didn't care. They're just concerned about their status. Their, their, their world is being rocked in these last few moments with Jesus he says in verse 6, Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you that he, what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So let's walk through that passage really quick, but uh, I've already kind of addressed verse 5, and they're, they're concerned with, you know, that he's leaving. But verse 6, really what I believe is the hardest message, and normally I don't get to this part until like later in the text, but we're going to get there right up front because it's right up front in our text today. It is best for you that I leave because the advocate won't come. Now, I want you to notice, he didn't say the advocate can't come. He just says it won't come. Like Jesus, and, and it's just the plan of redemption. And quite honestly, he was speaking to the, the disciples and what they knew of Scripture, of the, the, the age of the Spirit being the age of the kingdom of God, so that, you know, in the Old Testament, it points to the Spirit, and he's saying, I got to go. 
and then the Spirit will come. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But what is this advocate word? We talked about that because back in the last passage we were in, in chapter 15, when he talks about the world opposing his disciples, uh, he, he does sp- speak about the Spirit in the context of, hey, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna bear witness to me, and the Spirit will bear witness to me in the midst of the opposition you'll face. Listen to this, John 15, 26, 27, as a way of reminder. But I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. That word advocate is the Greek word parakletos, which is really kind of hard to, to, to translate. Like there are certain words like water, it translates water in Greek. But parakletos is, is a, a, a word that comes from like the Greek legal lingo, the one who comes alongside. So English translators of the Bible will say it's uh, the counselor. If you have the NIV, your Bible maybe says counselor, or the ESV, the helper, the comforter in the King James, or the advocate in the New Living that I'm reading. So all of these kind of speak to the role of the Spirit. And this is in reference to the Holy Spirit, the advocate, not the word pneuma, which is is the Greek word for spirit. So John is really kind of unique in, in calling the Spirit the advocate, or at least remembering that's what Jesus uh, referred to him as. Let me re- re- remind you that we've seen this, this advocate earlier in this discourse. In John chapter 14, Jesus teaches his disciples that the advocate would bring to their memory what he has said. He's going to remind them of what he has said, which is funny because Jesus later on in our text will say, I wish I could tell you all I want to tell you, but I can't but we'll get there. In 15, we've already mentioned that, that Jesus says the advocate will bear witness to the risen Christ. And here in 16, that he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. We're going to read that in the very next few verses. I already mentioned that he didn't say, I, I have to leave because if I don't leave, the advocate can't come and said he won't come. And he's speaking, right, to their expectation. See, they've been expecting this age of the kingdom, Jesus to establish his kingdom, but they're also expecting to be seated at his right hand, like, let's rule. So they're, they're, they need to adjust to what's going to happen in the next few hours with Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. Uh, he's preparing them for this massive shift in their expectations. The thing that gets me is when he says, it is best for you that I go away. And really, I believe it's the heart of this passage. Because I don't know about you, if, if I were to say, hey, wouldn't it be nice if you could choose to live in today's world as a Christian or live in the world of Jesus in that first century and walk with him and sit there and listen to him teach and watch these miracles feeding 5,000, what would you choose? Give me Jesus, right? I, w- I want to be there. I want to see him. I want to walk with him. I want to hear from him. That would be incredible. But Jesus says it's better for for them now that he's going to leave. It's better for him not to be there because the spirit, the advocate, the comforter, the helper will come. See, God is so committed to us that he doesn't just reveal himself, which is a pretty big task for finite human beings, for the God of creation to say, oh, by the way, I exist. And for us to go, oh. I mean, he reveals himself, not only that, but he saves us, he forgives us, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, okay, I've saved you and I've forgiven you, but uh, 
now dance, you know. I don't know. That's like a Western thing. Anyway, he does more. What does he do? He says, in, in, verse four, in chapter 14, we read this, that the Father and I, we're going we're gonna to make a home in you. He takes up residence in our life. This is why we talk about Christianity being a relationship with Jesus. You've heard people say, it's a relationship, not a religion. And you're like, okay, relationship with the one that we can't see. The one that the disciples had a relationship with, but we have to kind of vicariously live through the disciples. What are you talking about, relationship? Listen, the, the basic ministry of the Holy Spirit under this new covenant, the basic ministry of the Holy Spirit is to mediate Christ's presence, is to connect Christ with the Christian as we live our life. We talk about having a relationship with Jesus, but the reality is our relationship is via the Holy Spirit's work. There's a personal presence with Jesus that the, that the Spirit brings, and it's as if Jesus was physically present, although he's not. Jesus, fully man, fully God, the Logos takes on flesh, not physically present, but it's like he is through the power and the presence of the Spirit. Through the Spirit, there's personal transform, transformation that we are transformed into Jesus' likeness, not because he's standing there physically and saying, oh, I need to be like Jesus, but because the Spirit is in us, the advocate, the one that he sends. And then there's a certainty that comes, a personal certainty with that we are loved, we are redeemed, and we are adopted into God's family. That comes when we come to faith in him because the Spirit gives us that certainty. See, I, I stole this quote. It's actually a subtitle to a book that I've never read, but it's a really great quote, and I don't think I could say it any better than this. If there's one thing I want you to know today, it's this, that the Spirit inside you is better than the Jesus beside you. The spirit inside you is better than the Jesus beside you, or than Jesus beside you. And I don't know that I can convince you, but we're going to keep going in this passage and talk about why is it better. Look with me in verses 8 through 11. What we see here is the spirit's work in the world. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Verse 9, which follows what I just read, expands on this. So let me read verse 9, which expands on verse 8, which kind of seems like a, a real compact statement. So verse 9 expands on that. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Now, the Greek word here for convict, I think sometimes we think of convict as in like the gavel comes down, you're convicted and you're gone. But the, the, the word here is a, a, a convincing, a revealing, a, a, an opening eyes of, so Jesus is saying that the advocate is going to convince, he's coming to the world to convince them of, of their sin. Now, be careful here because it doesn't say he's going, to, he's going to convict them of their sins. The Holy Spirit's not here to kind of like keep score. He says he's going to convict of their sin. And what's their sin in verse 9? That they don't believe in Jesus. It's their fallen condition as a result of sin. That's what we call the impartable sin. It's rejecting Jesus. It's not pardonable because you've, you've done rejected him. He's saying we're, he's going to convict them of their sin, of, of, of rejecting Christ, and then show that Righteousness is possible because of his ascension, because he, he, he's no longer there. Now, once again, Jesus has not yet 
been arrested. He's not yet been on trial. He's not yet been crucified or risen or ascended to the Father. He knows this is coming, hours away from this coming. But he says, righteousness is possible, but, but really that righteousness that's possible, we're going to see is inaugurated in the, in the events that are about to happen. And then judgment is coming into this world because the rule of this world has already been judged. Now, step back and remember the last message about the world being in opposition to Jesus and the world being in opposition to those who identify with Jesus. It's almost like he's saying, because this is on the heels of that. I know it's been like two weeks since we were in that text, but he's saying the world's going to oppose you because of me. The world's going to throw you, they're gonna, you know, the religious leaders are going to throw you out of the synagogue. But guess what? The world's going to be judged because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There's an identifying with him that even, even though it looks like it might be difficult in, in the near future, we know the end. So this work of the Spirit in the world is really kind of a work of the initial work of grace that he does to convict or convince people about their sin condition, about, the, about God's answer to their sin condition, which is the cross. And then, there, and then one's fate with or without Jesus. If you identify with the world, you identify with him. If you're not a Christian here today, this is where I, I could stop. I mean, I, I, I want you to, if you walk out of anything, if you're not a Christian, let it be, let it be the, the message of the, the gospel, which sounds like a churchy word, but the gospel really means good news. And it's good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross because the reality is, there's a righteousness that God has, and there's a righteousness that, that we have, and it's not very righteous at all. And the Bible tells us that there's nothing we can do to work our way to God, which makes Christianity unique amongst so many other religions. There's nothing we can do. So God takes the initiative, and he does it for us. He lives a life that, that we can possibly live, cannot possibly live, and he dies a death that our sins actually deserve. That's, the, that's good news and that all of our sins, if we trust in Jesus from the past and the present, and if you're religious, and our future sins, all of that is taken care of. Sometimes people get in trouble and get hung up on this future sins. But yeah, that's taken care of too on the cross. That's good news. Don't, don't, don't take your past, present, your past forgiveness and your present forgiveness and, and think that your, your future sins are up on, on you. Jesus took care of that. That's for free. That's maybe like a, a pet passion or whatever. Verses 12 through 13. We see Jesus, first we've seen him work in the world. Now he sees his work in his disciples. Verse 12, he says this. There's so much more that I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. Jesus tells the disciples that it would be impossible for them to really understand everything he wants to tell them. And I don't know exactly what he wants to tell them, but I imagine it's like, here's what's going to happen, and you're not going to believe it until you see it. As a matter of fact, when it begins to happen, you're not going to believe it, period. He's already talked about, you're going to deny me to uh, the disciples. Remember now, he's, he's hours from being arrested, but then he says this, there's so much that I want to tell you that I can't tell you now. But guess what? You're going to gain an understanding of the significance of the things that are about to take place because of this advocate. Because the spirit of truth in verse 13, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus is the truth. We know that from I am the truth, right? 
uh, John chapter 14, he is the truth, but the Spirit will guide us into all truth, that there is a Spirit, that the Spirit leads his disciples into the implications of all that truth that is Jesus, all the things that are about to take place with his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection. This is what we call, or what Paul called, having the mind of Christ. Let me read you a lengthy passage that's not actually the passage we're preaching on today, but, but I want you to, to grasp this. Paul calls this, this leads you into all truth, having the mind of Christ. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit. For his Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except for the person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except for God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not, as the, world, uh, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us, understanding the implications of what Jesus has done for us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truth. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them. And they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ via the Spirit. If you take that literally, it's like brain transplant from the God in the flesh. I mean, you know, it's, it's via the Spirit. We talk so much about relationship with Jesus. I'm going to step away from my notes so you can't blame my notes for this one. Uh, we talk about relationship with Jesus, and, and that's what it is. It's a relationship with Jesus through the Spirit. When I, was, uh, when I went to college and I was in an intro to theology class, I was like a freshman or something, I guess freshmen get really obvious notes. Our professor printed off the notes, and there was this big, like, cartoon clip art hand, 1996, right? Clip art hand of, of, a, of, of pointing. There was a, a Jesus figure, and there was a hand pointing. It says, the Holy Spirit's job is to point to Jesus. It's to, it's to bring him glory, not to bring glory to himself or attention to himself. And, and so, therefore, it's all about Jesus. So we, 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 we operate as in, I have a relationship with Jesus. I hear from Jesus. And that's all true because that's the Holy Spirit's job. And the Spirit says what, the, what Jesus, you know, the Spirit proceeds from, from the Father and the Son. But it says, we're going to read that here in a moment. All I'm saying is there are different traditions that are afraid of some of the excesses of Spirit stuff. They don't talk about it a lot. And there's the other extreme where we, like, make the Spirit, like, some sort of superstar. And we kind of, like... Forget Jesus. The Spirit's not there for himself. He's there for Jesus, to, to, to bring glory to Jesus, to bring glory to Jesus in our life. Jesus goes on. He will not speak on his own, but he will tell you what he has heard. I kind of just already mentioned that. that he, and then similarly in verses 14 through 15, if we could just jump to uh, the end there. He'll bring me glory by telling you Whatever he, he'll bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. Jesus talks a lot in the book of John about his relationship 
with the Father. The Father and I are one. I do what the Father says to do. There's this closeness. There's this intimacy that takes place. And now he's saying the Spirit and, and himself have the same type of closeness. So, yay, Trinity. That's, sorry, I'm just saying. There's something to say, but the beautiful thing is, where does that spirit reside? Within us. And then he says, and, uh, he will teach you about the future, and if you have a different translation, it might say he will declare to you things that are to come. A lot of times we think of this as like apocalyptic future telling uh, end times eschatology stuff. And, and that's true that Peter, who was in that room, and John in that room, they, they, they went to write about that in, in some of our New Testament books, and, and likewise Paul as well, but he wasn't in that room. But, but really, that's one way of seeing it, and, and perhaps there's something there. But I, I kind of believe that what he's saying is he's going to tell you about the future. He's going to declare to you, depending on your translation, of the things that are to come, the things that are immediately about to come, which only makes sense if you understand that, um, well, there's an objection to say, well, how can he tell them what's, what's to come because he's not yet dead and this, the advocate hasn't come until he's d- dead, risen, and ascended. But the Holy Spirit unpacks the significance of what is about to come, the immediate uh, future, like minutes, hours away from where they're at, that there's going to be a spirit-illuminated understanding of what's about to take place. And you know that because what you see from the disciples is when Jesus is arrested, they flee, they deny him, they're hiding in the upper room. Right? But what happens before Acts chapter 2 is they're hiding, scared. Jesus is saying, go, go and wait for the Spirit, then you'll receive power. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up in your face. The, the, Jesus, the Jesus that you crucified, yeah, you, you crucified him. God has made him to be the Messiah. That's a different Peter. That's a different Peter because of the Spirit. There's an understanding of what took place because the immediate thoughts of the disciples when Jesus is arrested was like, I don't understand what's taking place. But there's, a, there's an illumination of what took place. Whew. Those kids took up my time, I'm telling you. I loved it. I love it. It was beautiful. I mean, we have... We have if you think about centuries and centuries of church history took place and, and the average Christian did not have a Bible. The church exploded throughout that region in the first century. And there was a letter here and a letter here and a letter here. They didn't have what we have. Empowered by the Spirit. Eyewitness testimonies and the Spirit's empowerment. Throw in a little persecution and the church explodes. The spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. So here's what we do. Let me close on a couple of things to walk away with. First thing I want you to do, and I know you're thinking like, wow, I'm surprised Jerome went through this whole message and didn't say anything about abiding Sorry to disappoint you. The first thing I'd say is just revisit. And we spent three weeks on abiding in that first part of John 15. Revisit this, this call to abide, this call to relationship in light of the advocate, the one who will guide, who speaks, 
who tells, the one who, who says what he hears. You may recall that when we talked about abiding the first time, we, we kind of established it's not something you do, but it's yielding to the life of Christ in you, yielding to the Spirit in you. That's why Jesus says, abide in me and not with me. With me would be beside him, but abide in me is the spirit inside you. Can I just say that yielding is optional? You can be a Christian. You could have your faith in Jesus. You can believe that he did what he, what he said he, you know, he could believe that he did what he did. And yet when the spirit speaks, when he prompts, when he corrects, when he, put, when he encourages you to do something daring that you wouldn't do otherwise, you could resist and you could push it away. The, the, the Spirit does not impart some automatic wisdom. It does not replace our thoughts and our mind. As a matter of fact, if, if, I don't even know this is in the Bible, but I've always heard, like, God's a gentleman. He's not going to force you to do what he wants you to do. Good day, sir. I don't know. Whatever gentlemen is do, but listen... <laughs> That's, he's not going to override you. Guides, speaks, tells. That's the text today. The Spirit's influence can be resisted. It can be ignored. And Christians can get it wrong sometimes. Uh, Peter got it wrong. In the book of Galatians, we read about that. Second thing is this, as you consider abiding and yielding and how those two go together, abiding and yielding and the advocate, the spirit in us. Second thing is this, be careful, and I've already mentioned this a little bit, be careful not to resist because here's where we end up resisting. Like, I don't resist the Holy Spirit when he says, don't murder. Cool, got that. For our seasoned Christians who've been in this a long time and we're savvy about our sin, be careful not to resist the work of the Spirit by thinking that you have a more accurate view of your life than He does. Be careful not to resist the work of the Spirit by arguing for your righteousness when He reveals in you sin, weakness, and failure. That he's not doing it as a guilt trip. He's doing it to bring restoration. He's doing that to, to, to allow you to, to glory in his grace. But you can resist it and argue your own righteousness. Don't resist the work of the Spirit by comparing yourself to other believers and arguing that you're more righteous than they are. Like, God, why are you messing with my life? Why are you speaking to me? Why, why is the Spirit prompting and correcting me when I'm so much better than that person? None of us are guilty of that. Other churches do that. Don't resist the work of the Spirit by confusing what you know about the Bible with being someone who's been transformed. Don't resist the work of the Spirit by confusing what you do for God. Ministry, your experience, your success, whatever it is. The things that you do rather than who you are. Then Don't confuse what you do for spiritual maturity. finally, don't resist the work of the Spirit. When God chooses to work and to speak through someone you think 
is unqualified or less mature than you. Because God does that. I mean, he spoke through a donkey. And he still does today. I almost said it, but I'm smarter than that. The Holy Spirit makes the presence of God real for us. And God's presence gives us joy, which we'll see next week. It speaks to that intimacy that he's called us to all throughout this upper room discourse. It also gives us victory over sin. And I don't want to break down another passage, but for those of you who feel like God saved you and you put your faith in him and now he's like, okay, let's see how you do now. Like I wiped your slate clean. Now do, now do it. Thank God he has not left us to ourselves because I just get right back in the mess. He's cleansed us, forgiven us, and then has come to dwell in us that we would live a life that we cannot live. And we still won't live because we're still going to we're still going to fight him. Thank God for grace. Thank God for the help he provides. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. What a privilege we have to, to gather in a place like this, to look to your word, to understand what you have done for us on our behalf. But you haven't done it just because you've done your part. Now it's our turn to do our part. You've done it because you've done it all. You've done it all. And that's good news. Father, I pray that today we would find ourselves yielding to the voice of the Spirit. God, that the things that we need to do to, to love the person who's difficult to love, to walk away from those things that would control us, habits, thought life, that it's not upon us and our own strength, but it's the spirit inside. Thank you, Lord. That's very, very good news. In Jesus' name, amen.